Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Na'amaduhu wa nasalli ala Rasulihil Kareem. Amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Okay, and... Uh, can you all see the screen with the, um, the Kindle? All right, so uh, say, do you want to read for us Nature and Purpose of Islamic Law? The Nature and Purpose of Islamic Law. One of the first political crises to confront the nascent Muslim empire forced Muslim jurists to deal with the nature, scope, and limits of divine authority and human agency. The political crisis arose out of the death of the Prophet Sallallahu and the ensuing struggle over whether and also to what extent one can inherit the Prophet's judicial authority. Ultimate, ultimately, the political conflict over succession had a formative and lasting impact on the juristic discourse on the implications of divine authority and the role of human beings as the bearers and executors of this authority, as well as on the closely related issues of objectivity and subjectivity in law. As an essential point of departure, it is important to underscore that in jurisprudential theory, the ultimate point of Sharia is to serve as the well-being or achieve the welfare of people. The word Sharia, which many have very often erroneously equated with Islamic law, means way of God and the pathway of goodness. And the objective of Sharia is not necessarily the compliance with the commands of God for their own sake. Okay. Such compliance is a means to an end, the serving of the physical and spiritual welfare and well-being of people. Muslim jurists reasoned that if law will be made to serve the well-being of people while at the same time avoiding the pitfalls of the tyranny of human whim or unfettered reason, divine guidance and direction is necessary and indispensable. Okay, yeah, let's uh, stop right here for a second. Um, so, so what's taking place? Uh, the prophet, peace be upon him, has died. And the, the textbook Sunni opinion is that the prophet, peace be upon him, did not give clear indication who his successor who his successor should be and he's he, he has given uh it's clear that he's given many hints of the people that he holds in the highest status so when he is ill he has abu Bakr leading prayer uh, he also says that if there's a prophet after me it would be omar and then he also says that you know ali is my successor Although it's understood differently in terms of Sunni and Shia tradition. And, and so he's given hints of people who, whom he prefers. And we can also see that from the perspective of these are the people whom either he has married their daughters or they have married his daughters. Right? He married Abu Bakr's daughter. He married uh, Omar's daughter. And then Uthman married two of his daughters. And then Ali married his, his, his daughter. So that's another pretty, pretty strong hint of the people uh, uh, whom he... he First, as we know, when the Prophet peace be upon him had died, there was a lot of, of discussion over what should be the future of the Muslim community. One of the questions on the table was, should we remain as one ummah? Or should the people of Medina go remain in Medina and the people of Mecca go back to Mecca? And, and one of the initial uh, assertions was that, okay, we should remain one ummah, but one of the elite of Medina should be the Amir of everybody, should be the, the leader. And then Ahmad says, uh, you know, regarding the people of Arabia, they've all just become Muslim, literally within the past six months. 
And they're not ready to take anyone as their leader, except someone from Quraysh. So everyone started going to Omar himself. And then he says, there's no way I can be leader with Abu Bakr here. And so then they all pledged their allegiance to, to Abu Bakr. Uh, Ali was not present during these deliberations. And later he himself gives, or people raise the question of how come Ali didn't uh, give his pledge, his allegiance to Abu Bakr, but then he makes a public proclamation showing that he's pledging his, his allegiance. And, and so now think of, so one question was, what is the leader, what is the nature and scope of leadership going to be? But then how does all of the authority of the prophet, peace be upon him, translate into this life beyond him? And so one way it was looked at is not that the Khalifa becomes the successor to the prophet, peace be upon him, in terms of authority, but the community becomes the successor to the prophet in terms of authority. And think about how important that, that distinction is, that if we made the Khalifa the successor, then we've essentially made the head of the Muslims the, you know, the, uh, the equivalent of the Pope. So it's akin to what we have in Ismaili tradition. So in Ismaili tradition, the Aga Khan is the descendant of the prophet, peace be upon him, and he is the, the, the head, the authority of, of the Ismaili Muslim community. And so Sunni, uh, the Sunni opinion is, no, the Ummah becomes the authority. And, and so there's the narrations that the Ummah is not going to agree on something that is wrong. It doesn't mean that, that they're going to agree on too many things, but the point is that <clears throat> the Ummah becomes effectively the inheritor of the Prophet, peace be upon him. We also, of course, have the teaching that the scholars are the inheritors of the prophet, peace be upon him. But the scholars, again, do not have the authority that the prophet has. I mean, if the prophet says do, we can question and ask and get more details. But ultimately, if he says do, we have to do. If the scholar says do because the prophet says X, Y, Z, we can go to get a second opinion from someone else. And, and so the ummah becomes the authority, which then means it becomes the responsibility of the members of the Ummah, including us, as well as everyone else, to then figure out answers to big and small questions. Which then means that this becomes the responsibility of every generation of Muslims. It's to figure out the answers to the big and small questions of life. Now, by and large, the big, big questions, the assumption there is that those have already been answered. But then the details of our era how do we practice Islam in a way that's consistent with tradition, but wholly relevant? That becomes every generation's responsibility to figure out. And if the generation, uh, uh, what's the word, abnegates the responsibility, if it does not fulfill its responsibility, then the entire generation and the succeeding generation is going to suffer because of it. So the determination then became that Sharia this idea that we are translating as Islamic law, the literal translation of Sharia is, is the path that leads to relief or the path that leads to ease or the path that leads to water. And so in Islamic context, it means the way of God, meaning <clears throat> the way to God and the way that Allah is prescribing. And among the core principles then of, of Islamic law, uh, the core, among the most core principles is essentially the well-being of the community. And you can translate that in a number of different ways. It could be stability in society uh, or, uh, or providing order 
a healthy order in society. But law is not the same as justice. Law tries to facilitate justice, but justice is something different. Law is focused very much more often on order and stability. And so those are some of the big uh, points that, that had to be figured out. And then uh, let's continue. Where do we leave off significantly? A question, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. Early on, um, when you were discussing, you mentioned that that the Prophet explicitly said that Ali was a successor. So if that's something he explicitly said, I'm curious. I mean, I wasn't aware of that. So what is the Sunni interpretation of like how those words fit in, if that makes sense? Yeah, totally. And so, so the Sunni interpretation works a couple of different ways. Uh, one is that he is a successor, uh, not necessarily in terms of authority. Another is that he eventually becomes a successor anyway, right? Uh, but it gets balanced with what the Prophet peace be upon him was saying about everyone else, meaning it is the same narration that that in Shia tradition is called the narration or the Eid of Ghadir Khum. So this is a, a day about seven, about a week after the Hajj, where the Prophet peace be upon him is on the way back after performing the Hajj, and they stop off at this pond and he makes this announcement. And in Shia tradition, it's looked at this is the announcement where the Prophet says he's the Imam, and in Sunni tradition. It's balanced with everything that the prophet has said about all the other people too, right? Like you know, having Abu Bakr lead prayer, have, you know, Omar would be if there's another prophet, it would be Omar and such. Meaning, if if the uh, Ali was clearly to be his political successor, you know, or and or religious successor, then we would have seen the prophet peace and put Ali in these other positions as well. But that does not seem to happen. Question. All right. Uh, you want to continue uh, where it says significantly? Significantly in Islamic legal theory, God communicates God's way, the Sharia, through what is known as the Dalil. The, the, sorry, the Dalil means the indicator, mark, guide, or evidence. And in Islamic legal theory, it is a fundamental building block of the search for the divine will and guidance. As a sign of God's mercy and compassion, God created or enunciated numerous indicators serving as guidance to human goodness well-being, al-hasan wal-ma'ruf, and ultimately the, the divine will. Moreover, God ordained that human beings exert a persistent effort in investigating the divine indicators, the evidence of God's will. Yeah, keep going. Not sure. Yes. So that the objectives of sharia may be fulfilled. Okay. Not surprisingly, the nature of the dalil becomes one of the formidable and formative debates of early Islamic jurisprudence. The most obvious type of indicator is an authoritative text, nest uh, sharia, such as the but Muslim jurists also recognize that God's wisdom is manifested through a vast matrix of indicators found in God's physical and metaphysical creation. Hence, other than texts, God's sign or indicators could manifest themselves through reason and rationality, aql and ra'i, intuitions, fitra, and human custom and practice, orf and ada. Which of these could legit legitimately be counted as avenues to God's will and to what extent were hotly debated issues? Especially with the increasing consolidation of the legal system after the 10th century, both Sunni and Shia jurists argue that most indicators are divided into rational proofs, dalil aqli, and textual proofs, dalil nasiya. As to rational proofs, jurisprudential theory further differentiated between pure reason and practical or applied reason. Foundational legal principles and legal presumptions, such as the presumption of innocence or the presumption of permissibility, and the presumption of continuity are derived from pure reason. 
interpretive tools such as Playas and Istan and hermeneutic categories are all instances of applied or practical reason. Okay. So, <clears throat> so then the next question becomes, how do we figure out what does Alotala want? And and so the we look through the text and and what we're speaking about when we say what does Alotala want, we're talking about in terms of specifics. And so thus we need evidence. And so the idea of evidence is the word dalil. And the primary source of evidence, of course, would be text itself. And then we'd have to determine is text clear or is it ambiguous? Is it qat'i, which we'll probably see, and or dhanni? Is the text clear? Is it categorical where you and I would agree that, yeah, we agree in terms of what the meaning is? Uh, or is, is it dhanni? which means it's subject to interpretation or it's potentially allegorical. And, and so if there's a passage that says do X, Y, Z, and I see this saying X, Y, Z, and I say it's clear, and you agree that it's clear, others uh, agrees that it's clear, then we would perhaps call it ati, and then it becomes an evidence. Okay. Or whatever, whatever it's saying, like suppose it says to pray or to perform hajj or to fast. You know, or something related to to marriage contracts, and and so so this is nas shari. It becomes regarded as an authoritative text. Now, the another source for figuring out what does Allah Taala want is our own intelligence, and so this is where we get into the question of aql and ra'i, so aql is essentially what we'd call intellect, just like we do in Urdu, and then ra'i would be considered opinion. So here it's translated as rationality. And so this is when you're trying to derive an answer, uh, not necessarily based on text. Another source for determining what does Allah Ta'ala want is your fitrah. And so your fitra is this primordial state of goodness that we believe everyone is born in. So, you know, in terms of theories of human nature, either people believe you're a tabula rasa, you're a blank slate, and then it's all nurture. Or your propensity is towards evil, which is, you know, the textbook old school Catholic outlook based on uh, original sin. We're saying people are innately good. People are innately pure and their tendency is towards goodness. And you're born on fitra. And part of your fitzra is that you have, by default, a hardwired connection to Allah Ta'ala. So if you were theoretically raised on an island, you know, and, and no one is teaching you religion, then you would have, by default, a consciousness of a supreme being. And then, and this is a point we've spoken, we spoke about, I think, last time, the idea of orf and ada. So orf is what is the custom, ada, just like the word in Urdu, uh, adat. What are the practices in your particular society? So think of all of these sources. We have text, we have intellect, which includes aql and ra'i. We have fitra, which is essentially your propensity towards goodness. And then we have cultural practice. And this mix, which includes orf and then ada, and this mix becomes the primary source material or the raw material through which we figure out answers to the question of what does Allah Ta'ala want? And so something like that we might take as common sense, but early generations literally had to conclude, okay, do we agree 
uh, that an intellect is a source of reasoning? Or is it just straight, take the text black and white? Well, the text says that there's ayahs that are clear and there's allegorical ayahs, and the ayahs in the text speaks over and over again about using your akal. Therefore, we have akal. And then likewise for everything else. And so then that determines what types of proofs do we have. So what would be the strongest proof? The strongest proof is when all four of these sources are basically saying the same thing. You have a categorical text. And intellectually, you know, using my intellect, it makes complete clear sense, right? And then on top of that, it just, it's clear that it aims me towards goodness. And then on top of that, this is what we already do. Okay, that You can't get stronger than that. But that's rare that you will ever find that, except if you're sitting in Medina at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And so the process then goes from figuring out these primary sources then to other tools. And so here we, uh, he mentions, you know, the presumption of permissibility. What is the idea here? is that, and this is the opposite of what we teach in Sunday school, that the default assumption is that all actions are halal, except where you determine that they are not halal. And so the default assumption, so if I ask the question, am I, uh, am I allowed to do X, Y, Z? The default answer is yes. And if I'm telling you, no, you can't, the burden of proof is on me to show you that you can't using those sources. And, and so at Sunday school, we teach you the opposite. We teach you that basically everything is haram, no matter what you try to do. You could, if you breathe, it's haram. And, and so uh, that's, that's literally the opposite of, of Islamic law. And then there's other presumptions. Presumptions, we talked about the presumption of continuity before. And so what is the idea here that culture or custom should be taken as sacred and a person's innocence should be taken by default as their state and so you assume nothing has changed or nothing should be changed unless you can give arguments why and and so so these are all these micro tools that are being developed to figure out what does Allah Ta'ala want and this then creates the whole worldview of the Islamic jur uh, jurisprudential system. So I think it's fascinating, you know, just trying to imagine, you know, generations trying to figure out what seems like little common sense, you know, minor points, but these become huge, huge points. Imagine how different everything would be if the default assumption was that human nature is, is, is by default evil. Okay. Or imagine, you know, how different it would be if the default assumption is that the Quran is not reliable, that it's been changed and such. Yeah, it is everything. All right, uh, why don't you read the next paragraph? Some Western scholars, such as Joseph Schott, claimed yeah, that the Muslim jurists initially were not very interested in the text and were much more prone to use custom and reason. Nevertheless, this view has been adequately refuted, and there remains little doubt about the centrality of the text from the very inception of Islamic legal history. It is true that in the first two centuries of Islam, one clearly observes a much greater reliance on custom, practice, and unsystematic reasoning, and that both the juristic schools in Medina and Kufa incorporated what they perceived to be the established practice of local Muslims. Both schools also struggle with the role of the text, its authenticity, and its meaning. The critical issue in early Islamic jurisprudence was not the struggle over what role the text ought to play, but more substantially, it was over the methodologies by which the legal system could differentiate between determinations based on whim or a state of lawlessness. 
حكم الحوا and determinations based on legitimate indicators of the divine will حكم الشرع okay so the academic study of islam uh, goes back about 150 years and the first big figure was a, na- a man named ignaz i g n a z goldzeher g o l d z i h e r And, and so this is a Hungarian guy who even studies in Al-Azhar University. And, and he does some really, really detailed studies of, of Islam. And, and he argued, among the big things he argued, he argued that one thing Muslims did correctly was that they preserved the Quran, but by and large, hadith are made up. Okay. And then uh, one of his ideological successors is Joseph Shah who really goes hardcore and says, you know, Muslims by and large completely forged the whole Hadith literature. And as illustrated here, they didn't even care about Hadith, that they were all focused on, on using intellect to figure everything out. Now, a side point, those, that's uh, especially important for all of us because a common question that I will get uh, about a Hadith narration is, is it authentic, right? And more often that question is coming because of the legacy of the academic study of Islam rather than the legacy of the traditional madrasa study of Islam. That the default assumption is, okay, hadith are just not reliable. And so that's by and large been completely refuted, especially within the past 25 years, that what Muslims say, specifically Sunni Muslims say about Sunni hadith are probably the most accurate rendering of, of those hadith. And And that would be a whole a whole topic on its own to, to discuss the whole history and sciences of hadith and everything. But <clears throat> another point I want to draw attention to is that the two early schools of Islamic law here, they're called the school of Medina and the school of Kufa. So the school of Medina is the school of Imam Malik. And the school of Kufa is Imam Abu Hanifa. And, and the school of Imam Malik His argument is basically that, all right, if there's one place in the world where we can see the practice of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Now, keep in mind, he's living about 150 years after the Prophet's death, peace be upon him. If there's one place where we can see the practice of the Prophet, peace be upon him, it's going to be Medina. And so there, if we see a thousand people doing the same thing, we can be pretty sure that that's what you're supposed to be doing. And part of this is the presumption of continuity. It's the assumption that people are just continuing what they have been taught. And, and then Kufa is, is an important place. Kufa is where Ali heads to and sets up his, his, his base as he becomes a Khalifa, just because at the time Medina was, was under control of these other forces. And then it's also looked at as the school of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, And so we know all the big four Khalifas, you know, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, Ali. Uh, and, uh, and perhaps in the top five, top 10, we would also include Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, who was taught nearly the entire Quran personally by the Prophet, peace be upon him. So he was a person who came from very, very meager means, and, and, but was given so much time by the Prophet, peace be upon him, that he, on his death, he was one of the greatest scholars of all of the, of the Sahaba. And so the Hanafi school is basically the school of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. And the, the myth was that Kufa, so far away, it was all intellect, whereas Medina, that place of the Prophet, was all people of Hadith. No, they were all people of Hadith. And, and the fascinating thing is Kufa is a Muslim minority population. Medina is a Muslim, almost a Muslim, 100%, popul- it's a 100% Muslim population. 
And, and so these are the two earliest schools that formed. And then the Shafi'i school is sort of an offshoot of the Maliki school. And so it comes later. And then the Hanbali school is in a further uh, uh, offshoot going in, in a different direction. And let's see if there's anything else here for our purposes. Uh, well, those are all the, 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 the big points. Uh, let's do a little bit more. Why don't you read the next paragraph? In Islamic jurisprudence, the diversity and complexity of the divine indicators are considered part of the functionality and suitability of Islamic law for all times and places. In fact, the indicators are not typically precise, deterministic, or unidimensional, allows jurists to read the indicators in light of the demands of time and place. So, for example, it is often noted that one of the founding fathers of Islamic jurisprudence, Shafi'i, had one set of legal opinions that he thought properly applied in Iraq but changed his positions and rulings when he moved to Egypt to account for the changed circumstances and social differences between the two regions. The same idea is embodied by the Islamic legal maxim. It may not be denied that laws will change with the change of circumstances. Okay, so, <clears throat> so what is the point here? That we would want to think that, okay, Islam is universal, the Quran is universal, and the practice of Islam is the same exactly everywhere you go. That is true for the acts of worship, but that is not true for the other aspects of life. And we might have talked about these categories before, but generally all actions get categorized into one of four categories. First are ibadat, so acts of worship. And the default there is you do things exactly as the prophet peace be upon him did. Why? Because there are not rational explanations for why we do these things. Why do we pray at those particular five times? Why not pray three times? Why not pray seven times? And, and why? Because this is how the prophet handed it down. Why do we do one ruku, two sajdas? Why? Because that's what the prophet handed down. I can give you all kinds of cool explanations. Why do we do two sajdas? Well, shaitan couldn't do one, so we do two. We show that we're better. But no, those are not the real reasons. The real reasons is because that's what the prophet handed down. And so the, the default is for acts of worship, you don't change those. Second category would be what we call social interaction. And so this is where you find everything from, from marriage, divorce, clothing, other types of interaction and such. And there things get, the, the things become this negotiation between all these things we talked about like text, intellect, local practice and such. Third category would be transactions, financial transactions. So loans, debts, purchases, everything would be in the third category. And the fourth category would be governance. And so the argument here is that all human actions that you can possibly imagine would be in one of these four categories. Acts of worship, ibadat, and then uh, so this would be your, your social interactions, your financial transactions, and then siyasa, uh, which is uh, governance. And, and so <clears throat> the first category is not very dependent upon context. Okay. So in theory, I can pray Zohar at a masjid in Chicago, and I can go to Houston at Zohar time, and we're going to pray exactly the same way, at least between Allahu Akbar and the Salaam, right? What we do before and after might vary. And then I can go to some place in the middle of Africa, in the middle of Asia, in the middle of Southeast Asia, and still the prayer is the same. Uh, likewise, Ramadan comes along, everything's the same. Uh, but 
in terms of social interaction, that becomes ultra-culturally specific. And so the example here is Imam Shafi'i was in, was in uh, where was he? I think he was in Gaza first. Uh, and then he went to Egypt. And so he gave one set of rulings uh, for, for uh, his you know, first locale. Then we went to Egypt, he changed his rulings. The principles of his rulings would have been the same. But then he determined, okay, life and culture here is different than it, it was back where I was before. And so this is uh, this takes a bit for 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 many people to 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 swallow. The uh, many people believe that everything everything is completely universal. No, principles are universal, and the acts of worship are universal. But even then, you and I know that the acts of worship might change because of local context. So if you have really bad weather, you might merge the two prayer. You might you know pray two prayers right after each other, right? And, and so, so that's uh, what's being uh, uh, addressed here. That is also a reason uh, perhaps why Sunni Islam, primarily secondarily Shia Islam grew as wide as they did compared to other sects throughout, throughout Muslim history because of the adaptability to every culture. Uh, because if the law was going to be practiced exactly the same way everywhere, it's not going to survive. And, and thus the Hanbali school is very, very small because much of their default was, okay, if it's in the Quran and if it's in the Hadith, there's your answer. If it's outside, then it becomes super, super hazy. Whereas the Hanafi school in contrast has this whole superstructure trying to figure out every single possible hypothetical issue you could face. And so that's why these schools that have survived have survived because they have illustrated through the test of time adaptability across different cultures. Let's do one more paragraph. One of the most important aspects of the epistemological paradigm on which Islamic jurisprudence was built was the presumption that on most matters, the divine will is unattainable. And even if attainable, no person or institution has the authority to claim certitude in realizing this will. This is why the classical jurists rarely spoke in terms of legal certainties, certainties, rather, as is apparent in the linguistic practices of the classical juristic culture, Muslim jurists for the most part spoke in terms of probabilities or in terms of preponderance of evidence and belief. As the influential classical jurist Al-Juwaini stated, the most in which the head would claim was a preponderance of belief and balancing of the evidence. However, certainty was never claimed by any of them, the early jurists. If we were charged with finding the truth, we would not have been forgiven for failing to find it. Muslim jurists emphasized that only God possessed, could possess his perfect knowledge. Human knowledge in legal matters is tentative or even speculative. It must rely on the weighing of competing factors and the assertion of judgment based on an assessment of the balance of evidence on any given matter. So, for example, Muslim jurists developed a rigorous field of analytical jurisprudence known as Tarujiya, which dealt with the methodological principles according to which jurists would investigate, assign relative weight, and balance conflicting evidence in order to reach a preponderance of belief about potentially correct determinations. Okay, so, so for our purposes, uh, that paragraph. So one is sort of a repetition of the original point that only Allah Ta'ala knows what Allah Ta'ala wants. Clearly, and and then secondarily, uh, uh, that because of our limitations, we can aspire intellectually to try to figure out as best we can what Allah Taala demands for us. 
and that even applies to, to text itself. And so outside of the perspective of law, but in the perspective of theology, this is a difference between the, the Sunni school of theology and the Mu'tazila school of theology. The Mu'tazila school of theology says, I have been given intellect by God, and these texts are addressing my intellect. Therefore, through my intellect, I can figure out exactly what God wills. Which means the attributes of God, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Al-Malik, Al-Qudus, so forth and so on, I understand them through my intellect to see what they mean. Therefore, I have the answer for you. Good. Sunni school says, no, we have been given intellect and we have been given text, but still Allah knows more, Allah knows better. So even in understanding these attributes of Allah, we can try to understand what they mean, but they only mean what Allah Ta'ala says they mean. So Ar-Rahman, I can use you know, grammar and linguistics to figure out what does it mean. I can look at its context in ayahs to figure out what it means. I can speak and see what the prophet says to figure out what it means. But only Allah Ta'ala knows what it means. So then apply this to law. We agree, you know, you and I and others agree, okay, this text is clear. And the text clearly says to do X, Y, Z. We agree upon that, but we still put the asterisk saying, and Allah knows best. And that then becomes fundamental because Islamic law is, is an aspiration to figure out what Allah Ta'ala wants. And so it's always an aspiration to figure out the best answer, which is sort of philosophically how science itself works, right? The journey through the universe is to define how does the universe operate? And then someone comes along with something even better, more accurate. And then someone comes along with something even more accurate 500 years later. And so it's this, this, this endless quest for precision and seeking and discovering what is it that Allah Ta'ala wants from us. And so another big term here to know is mujtahid. So mujtahid, you know, it's the word ijtihad. And part of it we've already addressed before. Uh, to do ijtihad is to do jihad really hard. So jihad is in the battlefield. Ijtihad is the scholarship. So scholarship is considered to be way harder than, than the battlefield. A mujtahid in the context of Islamic law, however, would be, so to speak, for lack of a better term, the godfather of a school of law. So a mujtahid, linguistically, is someone who works really, really hard. Within the field of Islamic law, someone who works really hard at scholarship, but specifically a mujtahid would be like Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam, um, uh, Imam Shafi, Imam uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal. They didn't just come up with a set of rules on how to interpret texts. They developed a whole worldview and so think of these four schools of law as four religions of Islam, where you have this primary source material and they've constructed a whole full worldview, including Islamic law uh, in, in terms of, of practice and such. And so that's a mujtahid. Sometimes we use the term mujtahid imam. And so those were the super big scholars. So being uh, a mujtahid would be like having 25 PhDs. You know, it's, it's, it's a ginormous uh, amount of, of knowledge. But those people would still have an Allah knows best in terms of, of ruling. And we see that in terms of their students. And so it's very common for Abu Hanifa to have an opinion. And then his, his big students, Imam Muhammad, for example, and Imam Abu Yusuf to say, no, we disagree on this and this and that. And they're disagreeing with you know the giant scholar Abu Hanifa, and we'll see reference to this a little bit later on. 
any questions about any of this? So much they had you could only classify pretty much the four main imams, right? Like somebody like us could not like study and classify as much they had religiously, right? So, so generally speaking, when we're using that as an official term, so we could use a term which they had generally speaking as a okay, this person's really, really working hard in scholarship, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but uh, as a classification, the way alim would be sort of like someone who has a bachelor's in Islamic law, right? Mukti would be someone who not only has a bachelor's, but also has specific trainings in the usul of Islamic law. And so all the way at the top would be mujtahid. In Shia thought, it's different. In Shia thought, uh, you have you have mujtahids, which would be a scholar that has equivalent of, let's say, three PhDs. You have ayatollahs, uh, and then you have marja'i taqlid, which is a person who has so much knowledge that it's almost, and this is easy to misunderstand, it's almost as though you follow their sunnah. Because their sunnah is the closest to the Prophet's sunnah. So marja'i taqlid is literally, it would be translated as someone who you are returning to uh, almost in blind following. So it's a different structure in terms of scholarship and such. But here, when we're using the term mujtahid, it's, it's referring to the big dudes early, early on in history. So as gigantic as a scholar as an Imam al-Ghazali was, he would consider himself to be tiny compared to those four. And, I mean, and it's sort of like the proof is in the pudding. You know, their thought is still relevant today. 1,200 years later, which on its own, that I find to be profound. Any other questions? Okay. Five uh, minutes. If, you, if you have five minutes, Robert likes the classroom. Could you just discuss something real quick? That'd be great. That's cool. Yeah, totally. Uh, let me see how much more there is in this chapter. Yeah, we've got a couple more paragraphs. So let's save that till uh, till next class. And, uh, inshallah. Uh, Adil, do you have any questions about anything? No, I do not. Okay, inshallah. All right, we'll stop right here. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nasdaq firuka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah ta'ala reward you all, inshallah. And then we'll say it, stick around.